Is it finally time to go global in your portfolio? Here's what matters. Live from our respective coronavirus social distancing outposts, I'm Lauren Goodwin. And I'm Robert Sarenbetz. And this is Market Matters from New York Life Investments. In this podcast, we, the strategists at New York Life Investments, will share insights from the multi-asset solutions team, what we think matters as we manage investment solutions. That includes Mainstay's Income Builder Fund, as well as individual solutions for our partners. And by sharing perspectives and engaging with you, our listeners, we can all become better investors. Welcome, everybody. It's the week of August 3rd, 2020. And today, we're going to address one of the highest conviction investment ideas we discussed in our recent investment policy meeting. Yes, we have shared lots of ideas about international investing in recent weeks. But it's such a hot topic that we wanted to bring in a resident expert in global multi-asset allocation. Yes, with us today is Mr. Jonathan Sweeney, Portfolio Manager and Head of the Multi-Asset Solutions Team at New York Life Investments. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you both for having me. Our investment committee met last week, and we do this monthly to ensure that our portfolio is positioned appropriately for investors over the next six to 12 months. And there's so many things to consider about this particular six to 12 months ahead. There's the virus, there's unprecedented policy support, there's the very influential US election, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the most important or relevant topics of the debate was this recurring theme we're hearing among our clients, which is, is it time to go global? What do you think? It is, I do believe it is. So the facts on the ground suggest that it's gonna be difficult for the US to retain the leadership role that it's engaged in here in the past couple of months. Uh, what we've observed has been a historic rally off of uh, valuation set in mid-March. Uh, this has been true globally. Uh, we believe the primary driver of this recovery has been the response to monetary and fiscal stimulus. Um, policymakers have succeeded in lowering the discount rate and uh, keeping households and businesses afloat, maintaining their cash flow, bridging the gap that was opened up by COVID, hopefully seeing us through to an eventual recovery in, in corporate profitability. But uh, unfortunately, here in the United States, public health policy has failed. Uh, the contagion is not contained. Infection rates remain very high. Uh, the death count is climbing. Um, and the, the net result is that this ongoing health crisis is extending an economic crisis. Consumers are, are pulling back. This is visible in one of the fast-moving data, such as credit card receipts, uh, restaurant reservations, air travel. Um, and what, what we see, what we believe, is that the economy is not going to recover until such time as this uh, health crisis has been addressed and consumers can feel comfortable reengaging in the economy. And to date, the economy has not recovered to the degree that stock prices have. So our concern is that there's a, a mismatch between present valuations and actual business connect, uh, conditions. There's this gap that exists uh, between the two. Well, right off the bat, there you have it, everybody, our, uh, our resident Dr. Doom. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, but amid all these reasons to be concerned about the U.S. 
and being extraordinarily unexcited about the U.S., that doesn't necessarily mean that you would be excited about global opportunities. So I'm assuming that at the very least, you've been more convinced by international developed markets performance, at least on the health front you just described. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the virus is global. It's a risk everywhere. Uh, but we have to recognize that in other developed markets, um, containment measures have been more effective. The initial lockdowns were generally more stringent nationally, uh, allowing them to effectively curb the contagion. Where hotspots have reemerged, they've responded aggressively. Reopenings have been well managed. Uh, populists broadly have been compliant with best practices. They wear their masks, they maintain social distance, they avoid large groups, particularly in indoor settings. And uh, the net result is that um, caseloads are, are less than in the United States. And that allows for uh, confidence to swell amongst consumers. They believe they can safely re-engage in normal economic activity without the risk of illness. And they do so, and we see that in the data. There's increasing mobility, increasing commercial activity without a concurrent surge in cases. So that is resulting in a stronger recovery outside the United States, a more rapid resumption of normal activity, which is what you would want to see. Okay, okay. So if we think about the two main drivers of economic performance that we're talking about in the U.S., the virus and policy, it sounds like a big checkmark in the box for virus contagion containment in Europe, that re-engagement with the economy. But what about the other major driver, policy? The U.S. fiscal and monetary support has been sizable, to say the least. So why tilt away from that kind of firepower? It's true. U.S. discretionary policy uh, has been absolutely awe-inspiring. We have brought just eye-watering firepower to the problem. Uh, but it's not as though other countries uh, have not likewise been aggressive in, in addressing these issues. And uh, in many cases, what we see outside the United States are that robust pre-existing social safety nets are already in place that allowed economic support uh, to take place without requiring all these one-off transitory uh, measures that have been adopted here in the United States. And uh, importantly, uh, to the extent that policy uh, was applied um, in, in a unique setting here this spring. Uh, in many cases, it was better tailored, better targeted to the need at hand outside the United States, that a multiplier is higher um, than has been the case in the United States. So a, a good example, this relates to uh, workers um, where they were provided income security directly through their employers. Basically, companies were paid to keep employees on their payrolls. So that preserves that employer-employee relationships, leaves those jobs intact for when the recovery arrives. In contrast, in the U.S., much of the support came in the form of enhanced unemployment insurance. Um, these benefits that are received only once you're, you're terminated from job net breaks that link, and it doesn't guarantee that reemployment is going to be a possibility. Um, so that's somewhat problematic. Um, when we look overseas, we see oh, less panic, less demand destruction. Uh, no need to go looking for a new job. And these are effective outcomes. Uh, this crisis is far from over. Um, so we can't know yet with certainty just which policy response ultimately will prove to be the most effective. But for now, from my perspective, one is pretty clear. 
Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And I think the point you're raising about keeping folks anchored to their places of employment is so important when we think about the long-term recovery. So even if we aren't sure exactly how this will pan out, that does seem to be another big uh, check mark in uh, the policy box uh, where the European recovery is concerned. So if those are two major economic factors, let's briefly touch on the market factors at work here, because of course, amid all of this is a valuation factor that I think is really important um, from a multi-asset portfolio dynamic. So how do you see uh, valuations playing in here in this US versus international developed question? No, but to be sure, it's an enormous factor. Uh, foreign markets are priced at a very steep discount to the US. Um, U.S. large companies trade somewhere on the order of $26 per dollar of, uh, of forward earnings, so earnings that are expected to be uh, accumulated over the next 12 months. In contrast, outside the United States, developed markets are averaging somewhere around 2021 versus consensus estimates. Of course, it's what actually uh, um, is realized is impossible to know at this point. This is the, the best guess among street analysts. Um, so we've created this one-two punch uh, of relatively relative favorability for non-U.S. markets and that you have um, stronger economic trends outside the U.S., as well as more attractive valuation. Stocks are simply cheaper away from the U.S. And you put those two together, it implies that now's a good time to consider tilting towards uh, international stocks. Well, I appreciate your your patience in the hot seat, John, but I'm going to try to throw, throw one more thing at you because it can't be just a win, 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 right? Um, so I, I, I want to ask you about currency, which is a huge factor, of course, in international investing. And the dollar surged during that big risk-off period in March of this year. And, and now it's been moderating as um, investors have have calmed a little bit as the virus has become more of a normal part of our lives. So what role does currency play in your decision-making across this multi-asset, multi-regional or global portfolio? Well, I think we must first recognize that currencies are notoriously difficult to forecast. Few have consistently exhibited much ability to do so. And certainly the environment today is as confusing as ever. On the one hand, accelerating global growth tends to coincide with a weaker dollar as do growing current account and public budget deficits, all else being equal. But all else is not equal. U.S. real rates have plunged recently as growth has been threatened by this resurgence in uh, virus caseload, and that diminishes the appeal of U.S. dollar assets. So it's hard to know where we're headed from here with high uncertainty to the trajectory of the pandemic still ahead of us. We would expect currency volatility to persist getting the direction right is going to be difficult. So with that currency volatility, it certainly is not to suggest that uh, pursuing a global mandate is not appropriate. It is. Uh, it just means that it might be wise to couple an overweight to international equities with a currency hedge or lean into products that offer an asset allocation overlay where that can be managed to a degree. All right. Well, there you have it, folks. On a Looking six, 12 months ahead, so on a tactical basis, better economic growth, better virus handling so far, stable policy support, attractive valuations, and you know, currency is always a, always a challenging factor. Those are uh, combined some great reasons to consider going global in your portfolio. 
Yes, which sounds like an excellent point for me to jump in and kick off our portfolio pause, which is a section of the program where we share an investment idea. So we've talked a lot, as Lauren just described, about why we want to go global in a portfolio. Now we have to talk about how you go global in a portfolio. So John, Lauren, and I have discussed some of these themes before in recent episodes. Um, All kinds of this good stuff from a multi-asset perspective, like Uh, what better handling of the virus means, what U.S. growth versus international growth means, uh, what investors should keep in mind in terms of currency fluctuations. Let's put this all in perspective according to a portfolio manager who is pulling on strings in his own portfolio. How can an investor looking for international equity exposure get that equity exposure? John? Yeah, so I'm repeating myself to a degree. But again, we we do absolutely favor non-U.S. markets at present. In aggregate within our portfolios, we're a bit underweight equities, uh, but we still have substantial equity holdings. And to the extent that we do, we uh, sense that the balance of risk and reward is more favorable outside the United States, and we tell in that direction. Lots of vehicles available to help with that. Probably the simplest, most straightforward way to achieve uh, global equity exposure uh, would be to invest in a relatively low-cost ETF that tracks an international stock index alongside whatever current holdings you might have. Uh, yes, that makes a lot of sense. Getting a low-cost ETF to just perform as you'd expect that market index to perform. And that sounds like a great option for investors with high conviction in an asset class. But it also sounds like you might have a couple more targeted ideas up your sleeve. What else are you thinking there? We should acknowledge that striking the right balance amongst asset classes, including between U.S. and non-U.S. equities, is tricky business. Um, You might consider investing in a product that has a a global mandate to begin with, either all equity or multi-asset, so that you don't have to manage that mix yourself. Currently, a global strategy of particular interest in this high-volatility regime might be one that seeks companies capable of growing cash flows and earnings in this challenging environment, uh, particularly those that can distribute profits back to shareholders as a dividend, as that might help investors navigate some of this COVID-related market disruption. That makes a lot of sense. And Lauren and I have talked about this before. When you're in a period of really high expected market volatility, there's a lot of benefits to an investor of building income in multiple areas of their portfolio. And that all starts with finding good companies that have solid and sustainable cash flows that they can use to to bring back to their businesses. And this will allow investors to add value to the portfolio without necessarily relying on price appreciation or or markets just driving prices higher. That's precisely the idea. Uh, There are a lot of concerns that are keeping investors up at night lately, policy risk, trajectory of the pandemic, economic and political uncertainty, on and on. We could list endlessly factors that are on investors' minds. And for those who are uh, seeking to to balance all of these various risks in one product with one management management team, uh, they might want to consider a, a global product that's dynamically managed, it's multi-assets, you've got both stocks and bonds in there, uh, and importantly, that has an income-driven mandate. So it's a, you're, you're seeking out somewhat more stable investments that are returning capital today rather than banking on future earnings that could prove elusive. 
Yes, John, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode where we've discussed why investors should consider going global and the various ways they can do that in the portfolio. Best of luck in the coming months. And hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. Yeah, thank you. This was terrific. Thank you for having me. Coming up this week, Biden could pick his running mate ahead of the Democratic convention, which is just a couple weeks away. Wow, that's so exciting. We're about like 90 days out now. I know, I know. And and we will have some content, including here on the podcast, about the election in the coming weeks. So come back for that soon. But this week, I expect that all eyes are on fiscal policy. Um, last week, the additional unemployment benefits, the, that $600 extra dollars a week, expired on Friday. And so all eyes are on whether Congress can continue to prioritize bridging the economic gap created by the virus. I know my fingers are crossed in hopes that they do something, but what do you expect, LG? They, they'll, they'll do something, or that's what we expect. But the longer that it takes, the, the more that we stretch into August, and of course, um, you know how big or small that policy is, um, will impact how nervous markets and um, economic actors, like uh, all the folks relying on those benefits, will become. So sooner is better, that's for sure. Uh, sooner is certainly better uh, because this has real impacts for consumer spending. If these unemployment checks aren't coming through, the 17 million uh, unemployed Americans right now are probably going to have some trouble paying bills. And that will have big implications for earnings. Right now, uh, we are about halfway through our earnings season, and we've heard about Q2. So that the quarter that's already passed, uh, that was a major economic hit to the, the economic shutdowns. And after hearing from about half of companies, we've found a small handful of companies that have posted astounding profits and revenues, but most companies experienced heavy losses. Uh, Overall, earnings are expected to decline more than 35% versus this time last year in the second quarter. Uh, And a a record, well, a record number of companies have been beating expectations. I think it's been about 84% on average. Those beats haven't really resulted in in improved pricing in the equity markets, largely because investors are looking ahead. They already expect earnings to recover to their pre-pandemic highs by the end of 2021. So with all that uncertainty out there, we we wonder if if, if that will come true. Um, But we're just going to continue to watch earnings for now. Well, that's it for today. And that's a lot for today. So we'll be back next week with more Market Matters. Yes. Let us know what matters to you. Yes. If you have a, a question or topic of interest, let us know by finding us on social media. That's right. You can send us your suggestions or highlight what matters to you by finding us on LinkedIn. And you can also follow our views at nylinvestments.com forward slash blog. But until then, I'm Robert Sarenbetz. And I'm Lauren Goodwin. We look forward to seeing you next week. Our podcast is produced by Milo Benamont, and our music was composed by the fabulous Zach Young. I'll now read our disclosures from compliance. For more information about Mainstay Funds, call 1-800-624-6782 for a prospectus or summary prospectus. Investors are asked to consider the investment objectives, risks, and charges and expenses of the investment carefully before investing. 
The prospectus or summary prospectus contains this and other information about the investment company. Please read the prospectus or summary prospectus carefully before investing. There's no assurance that the investment objectives will be met. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, which will vary. All investments are subject to market risk and will fluctuate in value. This material represents an assessment of the market environment as of a specific date. It is subject to change and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information should not be relied upon by the reader as research or investment advice regarding the funds or any issuer or security in particular. The strategies discussed are strictly for illustrative and educational purposes and are not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. There is no guarantee that any strategies discussed will be effective. This material contains general information only and does not take into account an individual's financial circumstances. This information should not be relied upon as a primary basis for an investment decision. Rather, an assessment should be made as to whether the information is appropriate in individual circumstances and consideration should be given to talking to a financial advisor before making an investment decision. New York Life Investments is a service mark and name under which New York Life Investment Management LLC does business. New York Life Investments is an indirect subsidiary of New York Life Insurance Company, New York, New York 10010, and provides investment advisory services and products. New York Life Distributors LLC is located at 30 Hudson Street, Jersey City, New Jersey, 07302. New York Life Distributors LLC is a member of FINRA SIPC.